My name is Victoria Lim, and I am a PhD candidate at UC Irvine. My work is in the field of computational chemistry, um, specifically in computer-aided drug design. I hope that this work pushes the field for how to develop drugs in a faster and more efficient process. Um, thank you for tuning in, and this is my grad life. Howdy folks, welcome to the This Grad Life podcast. Here we chat with researchers about their work and the inner turmoil that often comes along with living life on the bleeding edge. I am your host, Dr. Ted Yu. If you can't get enough of science and or dread, head down to our official website, www.thisgradlife.com. There you can read more about this episode's guest. Finally, if you find value in this podcast, you can also find links to support us. Today I'd like to welcome Victoria Lim from the Department of Chemistry from UCI. Now, we know each other because of our work, and we work in a very similar field, and because our work with the lowdown on science, all of which we'll talk about today. Thank you for coming, Victoria. So, computer-aided... Computer-aided drug design. Computer-aided drug design. Thank you very much. Yeah. Um, so, could you explain what that is? Yeah, so basically, on a day-to-day -day basis, I build models and run simulations of these um, tiny molecular machines that we call proteins. So. Proteins are basically are they're responsible for everything that goes on in your body, from like the fact that you can listen to me right now, the fact that you can see me, um, the fact that you can just like walk anywhere. Um, they're from the actions of millions of proteins, probably more. Um, but yeah, so the way that drugs work often is that maybe a protein doesn't do its job, or maybe it's being hyperactive, and we want to be able to control these proteins' behavior. So in small molecule drug design, somebody might come up with a molecule that can influence that protein's behavior. So for example, it could stop a hyperactive protein or reduce the activity of a hyperactive protein. Or um, in the case of a protein's not doing its job, maybe we can help the protein do its job by like binding to a specific region on the protein and then maybe like triggering some sort of interactions that help the protein do its job better. And so essentially what drugs are in, in um, at least one category Category of drugs is basically modulating protein behavior. So in my work, we look at protein and small molecule interactions, and also other things like how well the molecule might be able to permeate the lipid bilayer, and um, hopefully use this to further uh, the development of new drugs. Could we take a step back and talk about how proteins work and thereby getting to how drugs work in general? Yeah, so I mean, I guess this is like a, a field of research that's been going on for, you know, a very, very long time. Right, right. Um, yeah, so there's all sorts of different types of proteins. There are, you know, structural proteins. There are um, globular proteins. There are proteins that live in your cell membrane. There are proteins that are sort of just, you know, on outside of the membrane in solution. And each protein has a different job. So, for example, in my research, I study a protein called the HV1 proton channel. And the job of this protein is to, so this protein is living in your cellular membrane. And the job of this protein is basically to let out um, a buildup of protons that are inside the cell. So basically, like when stuff happens inside your cell, the pH balance may, um, 
may no longer be maintained. So then now the protein is responsible for maintaining that balance. So what it does is it opens up. So it's like a, a gate. And when it opens up, it lets these protons flow out of the cell to restore what we call homeostasis or like this controlled balance. Gotcha. So proton buildup is common. Yeah. So basically, like when whenever you have an infection, um, you have to fight these um, like the these little bad guys, right? Yeah. That are like causing um, that that could be that could wreak havoc on your health, and so that triggers the production of reactive oxygen species, and reactive oxygen species are good for in terms of um, I guess fighting these infections in in the very microscopic point of view. Uh, so during the production of reaction ox- reactive oxygen species is when the pH balance might be, um, I guess, not maintained. So I guess it does kind of have to happen all the time, right? Because yep. we're constantly under attack and our immune systems are more or less working all the time. Mm-hmm. right? So, so I guess then um, in terms of these types of drugs that would be used to help the uh, the HV1 channel. I guess what are the problems that occur with it in the first place? Yeah, so I think drug development in general is a very long and complicated process. More so, I, I mean, this is something that I'm starting to realize more and more as I do this research, is that um, let's say there's some disease or something, and you don't know what's the cause of that disease. So then the first step would be like, okay, what are all, maybe what are all the proteins that are involved that are um, behaving abnormally for people that have this disease? And okay, so maybe you studied that for a while, and then you found a protein, and you need to make sure that, you know, it's valid. So you there's a whole step called like target validation where you make sure, okay, this protein is related to, so maybe it's not the cause, maybe it's correlated or something to this disease. And then you can, and then as I said earlier, you can look at sort of how to develop um, a small molecule that actually binds to this protein and actually like change its behavior in some way. Ah, gotcha. But so I guess what are the kind of the ways it goes wrong in the first place? Oh yeah, I guess I sort of got off track there. (laughs) Oh, that was a beautiful, beautiful answer to a wonderful question that I was going to ask. But, yeah. um, okay, so so as I was saying, it's a, it's a long and complicated process, but at least in my research, uh, we don't actually know what the protein looks like. Oh. Yeah, so, okay. you know, ways of determining protein structure is, um, one way is X-ray crystallography. Um, another, another, some other techniques include NMR, um, which is nuclear magnetic resonance, and a, a newer, more like, uh, a, a method that has sort of seen resurgence recently is called cryo-EM or cryo, cryogenic electron microscopy. Um, but so it, not all proteins can be uh, studied in the, in the same level of ease. So with X-ray crystallography, you have to pack these proteins in little crystals. So basically like a bunch of proteins all packed together. Um, but in my case, HV1 is a membrane protein. So it's typically found in the environment of a membrane. But in a crystal structure, you don't have the membrane. So you can't, okay, yeah. I see, I and see then, the problem. Yeah, and then a, a secondary effect of that is that um, in the membrane, there's a potential difference. So the inside of your cells are typically more negative in potential than the outside of your cells. But now in this crystal, you don't have a membrane and there's also no potential difference which might cause some sort of structural change that may make the protein less stable. So all the tools that we have to look at proteins, you have to prepare them in a certain way and yeah, correct. in the cell it doesn't exist in that way so it just can't work. Okay. Yeah. So 
I guess that would make it very difficult to try to make drugs for it, especially figure out what's wrong with it. So then how, how does that work then? Yeah, so people have come up with all sorts of tricks to sort of like, you know, estimate sort of, I guess like estimate what they're, what the, what you're working with. So um, in my project, we have what is called a homology model, where we look at proteins that might have a similar sequence, um, genetic sequence, and we can use that model. And maybe we might have information from a protein that's not from humans, but from another species, for example, like a mouse. And we can use information of the genetic sequence and maybe information of the proteins from other animals to build a model model that is expected to look like what we believe it should. Okay, so you have tricks to kind of get around what the protein looks like by using different models that are similar enough. Um, I guess, how do, is there like, how do you go about, is that what you guys do then? Uh, like, um, how do I mean- you... Yeah, I guess like it, it sort of depends on your project. In my case, I was I I was lucky in the sense that I was inherit I inherited this homology model, so I didn't actually have to build it myself. Oh, it <laughs> saves a lot of headache, I imagine. Yeah. yeah, I don't think it's quite easy. But then again, there's a lot of things in research that are not easy. Yeah, yes, yes. So then, um, where does your computational work come in? What do you What do you do in the day to day in trying to discover new drugs? Yeah, so my main project is on computing what is called relative binding free energies. And I guess a way I like to explain it to people in a very general sense is that the universe is very lazy. Um, and kudos to my friend Kellen for coming up with that analogy. But essentially, nature is very lazy, so it likes to be in the lowest energy state. And things that are higher in energy are less probable most of the time. And so in, in the terms of proteins and small molecules, we compute the binding free energy. So how much energy does it take for a small molecule to attach itself to a protein? And I'm, I'm, I'm using sort of a little bit of anthropomorphic terms for this. Yeah. Like it's not yeah. attaching itself really, but the protein also has interactions or it has like maybe crevices or sites that are conducive to the small molecule, you know, being there. So what I do is... Um, specifically relative binding free energies, where if we say, okay, we, we might have one, uh, one particular small molecule, but maybe this isn't the best one. But if we make a little change to it, like if we change out, you know, a single atom, like if we replace oxygen with nitrogen or something, maybe that'll actually make it a better binder. Maybe it'll actually attach to the protein better. So then we can actually compute what is the change in free energy of the small molecule binding to the protein. And the idea is the one, the molecule that has the lower free energy compared to, for example, another molecule will be um, a more, I guess, uh, a more likely candidate for a drug. What little I've had to work on proteins and what I've had to understand is that they kind of and correct me if, if this is kind of a too simplistic way of thinking about it. They, they have they have a sequence made out of amino made out of a sequence of amino acids in some order, and then that gives it its shape when it exists in nature. And um, and things like drugs or whatever the protein needs to work, the molecules kind of need to fit into each other, right? Is that more or less how that goes? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, there are different classes of drugs. So, in the case of small molecules, it's a small, it's literally a small molecule that can fit inside the protein. Um, but in other cases, there are biologics, which are, um, I think, in some cases, bigger than proteins and have a different mechanism of action, too. I don't know too much about those, though. Oh, I see. Okay. So, it's more than just 
binding just because of the free energy. Wow. Okay. That's kind of cool. Um, but you, that's what you specifically focus on, yeah, on the correct. binding of the free energy. So you mentioned molecular dynamics. So what is that exactly? Yeah, molecular dynamic simulations, um, I'm going to explain it in sort of the classical mechanics point of view because there's also uh, molecular dynamic simulations with quantum mechanics, and that's a whole other can of worms. So in my case, uh, running these uh, simulations, it's essentially sort of, okay, so you have a system and you want to see how it will behave in time. And if we think about sort of the elementary laws of physics or elementary principles in physics, um, the way something involves in time is from Newton's equations of motions, like F equals MA. And so we have, basically we want to compute the forces on the system and then we can determine the acceleration, like where where will this atom go if we place it here? Maybe it will be in a very strained spot. Maybe it's actually like getting too close to another atom. So there might be um, some electrostatic repulsion, for example, that might push it away. Um, so these are the examples of forces. What do you do in your day-to-day -day, then on a computer? How does that go? You know, so on a day-to-day -day basis, I'll do that kind of thing, like set up jobs, monitor jobs, um, analyze jobs, looking at sort of like specific um, metrics that I want to look at in terms of my actual simulations. Do you have to do your own uh, programming and things like that often? Yeah, I use programming for some job analysis. For example, if I have um, you know 40 different calculations going on, I'm not going to look at the output of each of them by hand, one by one. So um, that for that, I will use something like a little bit of bash scripting. Um, but in terms of analysis, I typically use Python or um, the molecular visualization software that I use is based on TCL. I've heard it referred to as Tickle, which Tickle. kind of tickles me. <laughs> Could you tell us how deep you're in grad school right now? Yeah, um, yeah. so I'm starting my fifth year of my PhD right now. Oh, yeah, last year, oh boy. Yeah, <laughs> hopefully last year. <laughs> crossing, you can't see this, but I'm crossing my fingers. Thank you. <laughs> um, so yeah, what are the sort of the things you've discovered so far? Research is hard. <laughs> yeah, research is hard. Yeah, well, t tell me about that. What's been, I guess, the difficult parts of it? Um, I think for me, the difficult part is not necessarily the science itself, but sort of just, I don't know, huh? <laughs> yeah, you're not alone in that experience. Yeah. I think it's just overall hard. <laughs> like, um, you have to be a, a you have to be very much a self starter. Um, some advisors might micromanage you more than others. Um, I think you know there's if you have one that's more micromanaging, it's both a blessing and a curse because you know you have somebody that'll like maybe keep you more accountable, but also like it can be hard to sort of like meet demands all the time. Um, so in general, though, you do have to be a self starter. Um, you sort of like have to make sure you keep your own hours and you have to be very disciplined in terms of like, you know, what are you gonna do that day or the next day? And, you know, when are you, like, I think it's better to sort of keep a regular schedule, like, you know, going in and leaving at the same time and, and just being able to leave your work at work because I feel like it's also very easy to take it home with you or feel like, your, your pressure to work on weekends as well, and sort of just like trying to maintain this balance between work and life. So a very famous man once said, uh, 
everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. <laughs> so, especially with computer stuff, I because uh, that's what I did as well, right? Um, like, because uh, I remember for me, what would happen is that oh, you submit a job, and then something went wrong, or you messed up some little option here somewhere. It's like, oh wait, why are these numbers garbage? Oh right, it's because the simulations are garbage. Oh right, that's because I'm garbage. So like, is that? <laughs> yeah, I feel that a lot. I feel like usually if I want to actually like have a set of calculations be reliable, it's probably the third time I you know actually set up the calculations or something before yeah. I like caught yeah. all the mistakes. <laughs> mm -hmm. How expensive are those calculations? Um, so the calculations I'm running typically take about two weeks from start to finish. Oh boy. Yeah, yeah. but you know, one caveat is that I'm not. You know, I'm, so I'm running these in parallel, but um, they're not running on the newest um, computing equipment. And um, I guess one thing that is sort of making MD simulations faster nowadays is running on GPUs. And the the, the particular code that I'm using does not support GPUs yet. Ah, uh, yeah. So yeah, you were in Sweden. Yeah, I forgot. I I just remembered that you were. So how how what was that for? How'd that go? Yeah, so it actually it was sort of like a mini sabbatical. So I was there for three months. Oh, that sounds kind of nice. <laughs> yeah, it was very nice. And so this was, you know, right after, I guess, like the summer between fourth year and fifth year. And I'm, I'm sort of dealing with some of the frustrations I have about my research. Like, why isn't, why isn't it going further? Why, you know, I guess sort of like, why am I not doing more than I, like, why have I not done more than I have, sort of? Yeah. And sort of just uh, yeah. the frustrations about my research, but also the frustrations about myself. And so then I had this opportunity to go to Sweden based on the fellowship that I had. And it's also uh, due to this partnership with the National Science Foundation, as well as um, to other scientific organizations around the world including Sweden. And so basically I was supported by the Swedish Research Council to do research there. And I worked in the lab of this guy named Eric Lindahl. And it was so interesting because my work there was, you know, almost completely different from the work I do here in Irvine. Um, so probably the, the similarities were, were that A, it was uh, MD simulations and gotcha. B, it was on a membrane protein. But other than that, like the, the software that I use, the, the purpose of the project, um, sort of the methods I use were all completely different. So it must have been like kind of a refreshing change of pace. Yeah, it was very refreshing. Ways. Yeah. <laughs> Going back to sort of the difficulties in the day-to-day. -day. So like, on the days you realize that, hey, um, when you've only done two calculations for free energy, <laughs> yeah. and you start, you're about to start your third, what goes on in your head then? Uh, it's just a lot of frustration and yeah. a lot of impatience. Yeah. And when I feel a lot of impatience towards myself, then I sort of just you know, burrow down further and I just sort of like try to close myself off from my world. And so I don't, so then basically I just, you know, I'm just, I, I just don't like really try to, I, I'm not really sure what I'm trying to say here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, burrowing down, getting more frustrated. I don't relate to this at all. I promise never in my life. No, <laughs> I'm being sarcastic. You can't see my face on a podcast. It's a podcast. So uh, there was something interesting you said a little while ago um, about how like kind of these frustrations kind of mean something about yourself at the end of the day. Yeah, I keep telling myself that my worth is not in my work, but sometimes it's 
head knowledge and hard to actually you know live by by that phrase yeah certainly knowing something and under like you know living it is is not the same thing yeah <laughs> at all um i guess uh what are the sort of the systems that you rely on is there anything you do to kind of like snap yourself out of that or is there has there any has there been anything recently that helped snap you out of that yeah taking a trip to sweden was a it was a very nice refresher it helped me sort of spark like i guess regain some of the interest in science not that like it's not that i'm not interested in science but dealing with the frustrations day to day kind of makes you a little bit better sometimes just a little <laughs> just a little just a tiny bit <laughs> again yeah. i can't relate being sarcastic again yeah but also i would add that like having a good research group is very important because sometimes you know you see your advisor much less than you see a research group and the people that you work alongside can also commiserate and they're you know they're there in the trenches with you suffering the same yeah. pains or yeah. very similar pains so they can understand and you know we help pull each other out of dark times yeah and I've also realized too, it's good to just have conversations anyway. Yeah. Uh, sometimes, even even in science, aside dark, dark times aside, the science itself sometimes you could be like, "Oh, what are you doing?" And I know you, I've come to you for help before, which is why she's on the podcast, by the way. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so thank you for that. Yeah. Um, so, what made you want to get into this sort of research, into specifically protein membranes, membrane proteins? Excuse me. Uh, <laughs> is that something you wanted to study or? Did it kind of fall into your lap? Because, you know, my research kind of fell into my lap. Yeah, so the project itself sort of fell into my lap, but the field did not. So when I was in undergrad, I really liked chemistry. And I also really liked math. So I did a double major in chemistry and math. And as part of my math major, I had to take a programming class. And that was in the spring of my junior year. And I discovered that I really liked programming. And... I really liked it, but it was, you know, I was like, oh, maybe I should try to do computer science, you know, for future career stuff. But then I realized, oh, you know, I don't actually want to change my major because I'm graduating in about a year. So that's a good my... reason to not want to change your major. <laughs> yeah. Um, but then I, I talked to my computer science professor about it, and he was con encouraging me to look for ways that I can combine chemistry with programming. And then I found this computational chemistry REU, this, um, which stands for research experience for undergraduates. And so I went to the University of Georgia for a summer where I, it was actually computational quantum chemistry. And basically I saw sort of how quantum chemistry and compu computer science could overlap. And I thought it was, you know, very cool. Uh, so basically I, I pursued computational chemistry, uh, I guess like around junior year of undergrad. Gotcha. Yeah. Awesome. Um, so how do you how do you think your work will impact humanity? I think, you know, computational chemistry in general, especially in the computer aided drug design, I think the, the impact for humanity is almost self self evident from the name. So basically like developing new drugs is a very long and costly process, but can we use computers to sort of maybe do some early screening or basically like initial assessments to help reduce the time and the cost that it takes to develop new drugs. So the idea is if we can speed up this part of the research process, 
maybe we'll have more drugs hitting the market. Maybe it'll bring down the cost. Yeah, more yeah, successful yeah. drugs because a lot of times drugs fail in the later clinical trial stage, and by the time you've invested so much to get it to clinical trials, well, you know you're losing a lot of time and money when it fails towards the end. Yeah, and I agree with you. It, it, the, the the benefit to humanity is seems pretty self evident, right? It's more drugs, better drugs for people. It's yeah. gonna be good for folks at the end of the day. But is it, does it, you know, me being in grad school, having been in grad school too, I understand, doesn't stay alive, that sentiment all the time. Is there, I guess, what do you do to kind of keep it alive? Um, I guess one thing would be just to remind myself why I'm here in grad school. I feel like when I make decisions, especially like life decisions like going to grad school, I tend to be very careful and cautious about it. So when I was a senior in undergrad, I heavily debated with myself whether or not grad school was something I wanted to partake in. And I wrote this document in Microsoft Word of reasons why you are going to grad school. And, and so sometimes I revisit this list of reasons of, oh, okay, I'm in grad school because of these reasons, and yes, they are still valid, okay. It's an, it can be hard in the present time, but sort of reminding myself of the big picture kind of gets me through that sometimes. So actually how we know each other is through uh, the work done in, through science communication. Um, could you explain, could you tell us a little about the work that you've done so far and what that's about? Yeah, so there's, there's a few different things I do in communication in general, as well as science communication. So... First and foremost, I am one of the managing editors for The Lowdown on Science, which is a radio show and podcast that takes the latest scientific research and distills that into these 180 seconds, so about three minute scripts that are, you know, funny and also interesting, or at least we try to make them that way. And so last year I was a writer for the show. And this year, I'm coordinating between the writers and the other managing editors, setting schedules, um, basically being sort of like a, a program manager for the lowdown on science. Um, so this is, and I also edit scripts. This you know keeps me more in, in terms of the SciComm stuff. She does a good job at all of that, by the way. <laughs> Thanks. Um, I didn't. I didn't pay him to say that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not being paid at all. In fact. Um, Another thing that I did at UCI is that, uh, so UCI has a graduate resource center where it's a resource for graduate students. And one thing that we offer is communications consultations. And so basically, um, somebody can request to book an appointment. Maybe they want help with a presentation for a big exam. Maybe they want help trying to present their information in a job interview, or maybe they just want to basically improve the way they like talk about their science or their research. And it's actually not just limited to scientists, it's basically graduate students from all over UCI. And so the last two years I served as the communications consultant there. And um, I've worked with all sorts of people from um, undergraduate alumni. So it's, it's the Graduate Resource Center, but they also see alumni. So I've seen alumni, I've seen grad students, I've seen postdocs, I've even seen um, 
a staff member who is preparing for a big presentation. And it's been rewarding to help these people, to like work with these people and help them to sort of craft their story and sort of how to organize the flow of their presentation and just deliver that in a strong and impactful manner. So what made you want to get into that kind of work in the first place? You know, I'm not actually like I'm I didn't actually know that I would enjoy this kind of work, but I took a communications class by Bree McWhorter called Activate to Captivate. And this was during my second year of my PhD. And I realized that I enjoyed it, even though I, I thought I hated being on stage, but like actually speaking in front of an audience, sometimes it's not so bad. You're sort of just like in a different mindset altogether. Um, and so I, I enjoyed that. And I found that I was able to speak um, sort of just like improv on the spot sometimes because I didn't always prepare as well as I should have. And I had a lot of fun doing it. And Brie asked me if I would um, be the communications consultant and I gladly accepted the position. So if you were to do all of this over again, what would you change? Would you change fields? Would you even go to grad school? Let's see. I definitely would go to grad school again, even though right now I feel like um, grad school, I am seeing sort of grad school from the grueling side of it. And I realize that I would like to graduate sooner than later. And I, ne I don't necessarily want to, I don't have the same career goals that I did coming into grad school. And I think grad school has helped me to realize that, but also some of the science communication stuff that I've been doing. Um, so if I could do it over again, I would still go to grad school. I would still do computational chemistry because I still do enjoy computers and chemistry. Um, I might try to be more cautious about the research group I join or be more, I guess, proactive in, in um, sort of who I talk to, to rotate with. Um, I think overall, yeah, there's very little I would change. Oh, that's a fine life, I think. So um, <laughs> could you talk a little bit about how your career plans have changed? Yeah, so as I said, I, I did an internship the summer before I started grad school. and Which was, was distinct from the pharmaceutical quantum, no, which was distinct from the quantum mechanical yeah, so I actually gotcha. did two internships in yeah, yeah, yeah. computational okay. chemistry. Uh, one was computation and quantum chemistry. And there I was looking at quantum tunneling. And the second one was in the pharmaceutical industry with computer-aided drug design. So I felt that I veered more towards the latter because I felt like it was more applicable to society, or at least the results were closer to having an impact. Um, so both were interesting, but I wanted to do something that would be useful, hopefully within my lifetime. And I felt that quantum chemistry wouldn't have the same level of impact that I desired. So when I started grad school, I wanted to do something very similar to what I did in my internship, but at a higher level. And after about three years in grad school, I realized that research is a very challenging field. There's way more failures than success. And I knew that going in. And I, you know, I, and I think I, I've been 
resilient about it, even like just overcoming the failures. But I realized that, you know, I don't want a career in research anymore necessarily. And so that's why I'm considering avenues in science communication right now. What awful experience has changed you for the better? What would you would rather not do ever again? <laughs> Probably the most awful experience, most awful singular experience I've had in grad school was the advancement to candidacy exam. And this is something that every person has to go through. And it might have different forms at different universities or in different departments. But in the Department of Chemistry, you write two 10-page reports, one on your own research, but one on a research that is in chemistry but outside of your field. And basically, you have to develop a full research proposal in this other area that you have to um, present and defend in front of five faculty members in chemistry. Well, five, four in chemistry and one outside member. So yeah, I, I think the, so the exam takes place in November every year for chemistry. And I think I probably started stressing about it in like May or something, or maybe, maybe even before. That's a long time before November. Yeah. <laughs> and so I, I was just like, it's just, you know, trying to so like think about, okay, what would be a novel, cool project idea? Um, learning all the methods that I'm not familiar with, looking for pitfalls that, you know, that might be there, but I, you know, how do I find these out other than like talking to people? Because um, people don't really publish their failures. So it's hard to see what might be a pitfall when you propose a new project. Um, and just like basically rehearsing my presentations over and over. This was also during this time, during the summer, this is also when I got into like the, I had a big car scrape that I had to deal with. So, you know, calling insurance like every day. And since I was away from my home so often, I was in the lab for, you know, very long days. My cat started developing separation anxiety and started to pee on my bed a lot. So just having, oh you know, all these different areas that were like stressors in my life just came together and it was uh, it was not a very fun time. Ah, uh, yes, the universal principle of uh, when it rains, it pours. Oh, certainly, yeah. So w one of the conversations going on in the world of science now is that we maybe we should start publishing our failures more. And you, you talked, you just now talked about how, um, well, no one publishes their failures. Like, how? What's your take on that? Yeah, I, I've I've talked to other grad students at conferences as well because you know. Some of the failures are pretty common for newcomers in a specific field. And it's frustrating that failures aren't published because you can't learn from them. But on the other hand, I can understand why failures aren't published because I feel like the scientific journals would just be overwhelmed with, you know, there are more things that can go wrong than can go right. Um, so, you know, I think maybe if there were a blog or something that, or maybe it might be discipline specific that can be an avenue for people to publish. But, you know, there's a lot of things that, you know, you'd have to consider like, would this blog be peer reviewed? You know, how, what kind of failures would we want to publish? Like, there are the failures that are like, no, you just legitimately messed up versus, oh, no, that's a, like a failure that nobody saw coming, you know? So there's, there's different levels of failures too. Aside from science communication, is there anything else you do beyond research? 
Yeah, I am uh, an, a part-time fellow at the UCI Be All Applied Innovation Invention Transfer Group. It's a mouthful. But basically, this center is a technology transfer office. And a lot of universities do have um, some sort of tech transfer office where they help the researchers at the university patent their inventions or at least try to protect their inventions in some way. And so um, as a fellow there, um, I will go through some researchers' record record of invention and basically look at sort of their technology. Can I, if if it's not described in very general audience terms, maybe just rewrite that for um, a non-confidential disclosure. And then I might do some initial market research to see, is there anything like this that is very similar? Is there any chance that maybe this is just replicating what somebody else has done, you know, halfway across the world? And sort of just sort of an initial assessment on sort of how patentable some technology is from UCI. That sounds a lot like the science communication gig seems like a lot of overlap. Yeah, there's a lot of overlap because you have to be able to describe your science well and like clearly and concisely, but not with too much jargon or too much complexity. And I think the difference is sort of the audience. So in the in the science communication work, like with the lowdown on science, the audience there is the general public, like, you know, people that are driving to work on, you know, down the 405 or something. But in the tech transfer work that I do, the audience is now, um, it might be the US patent, um, USPTO, US Patent and Trademark Office, or it might be um, some lawyers at a legal firm, or it might be the licensing associates at the tech transfer office. Um, so there's, you know, all sorts of different audiences in the, in the ITG work. It also seems like you'd have to spend a lot of time doing things outside of the field that you studied. Is that true? Or? Yeah, that is true. Um, so yeah, actually, like I've not worked on any computational chemistry cases. <laughs> so, I mean, I end up doing a lot of things with like chemical engineering, some biomedical engineering, some bio stuff. There's more stuff that, that's more like biological, but yeah, not nothing in com- computational chemistry. Hmm. It actually seems like a critical need, right? Because, um, you know, lawyers, they have to be smart, but they don't. They don't do what we do. They don't do science. So there's probably going to be a lot of body of, you know, knowledge missing. And, you know, the policymakers, too, they're not going to know about any most of the stuff. And, um, you know, old fogey judges that are out of touch and have been incumbented into the seat for – I'm ranting a little bit. But they've been in there for a while, right? I, I guess um, – do you see any of that challenges in that work? Yeah, I think they're – from at least from people I've talked to, there's always going to be a need for patent attorneys, um, and especially if somebody has a PhD, because it shows that you've gone into this field and sort of became an expert in this this area. So, and you know, you you develop critical thinking skills and all these other like communication skills and whatnot in grad school, but also like you have the ability to read scientific papers, to digest complex scientific concepts. And um, yeah, I think it's um, a pretty required. Uh, I'm not sure what I'm trying to say here. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, no science. First, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you that, definitely got to yeah. know science. Yeah, that'd be helpful, I imagine. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much. And before we go, uh, could you tell us a little bit about um, what you uh, your favorite go-to thing when you stress eat? 
<laughs> my favorite go-to stress eating food is Indian curry. <laughs> so why is there, is there a reason for that? Is there like a particular There's not really affinity? a reason. Um, I didn't actually like, I, I, I'm from Tennessee. So I grew up there. I went to college there. And so I actually only had Indian food one time and it was like, maybe a month before I graduated from college. And so in Orange County, there's just so much like diverse foods. And I just, I happen to have a particular, I don't know, I just happen to like Indian curry the most. <laughs> I just took to it, I guess, yeah. yeah. Huh. Well, awesome. Well, thank you very much for uh, spending the time with me to go through this interview. Yeah, thanks, um, Dad. Yeah, and uh, wish you luck in your final year of your PhD. Thanks.